Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at prophecy as a ministry of the Spirit, and I want to continue with that as soon as I get myself a fresh cough drop. May God bless whoever invented these things. I, I just heard an amen on that. <coughs> Excuse me. As an aside, I've never had this kind of sinus thing and allergies this bad. It's been going on now for 14 weeks. So I'm coming to the conclusion there must be a reason. I haven't figured it out yet, but I will find out, I am confident, one day, what the reason is. There's going to be a reason. And I say that simply because if you find you're going through something and you pray about it and pray about it and it just seems to go on and on and on, let me reassure you there is a reason. You just haven't found it out yet. So there will be a reason and it will be clear at some point. We have that confidence because we have a loving Father. Today, my sermon is Word to the Wise, What God is Going to Do. April 13th, 1986. Dick Eastman was a guest here, and he brought this word. God spoke to me that I had come to a fountainhead church, and I was to declare what that meant. And that was here. That word resonated resonated immediately with the leaders and the members and it became a catchword and ethos of this congregation. I was, in fact, told, informed, I might, maybe I should say, that I was coming to a fountainhead church even before I applied for the job of transitional pastor here. And in my first week here, I was informed by no fewer than seven church members, that this was a fountainhead church. Now, Dick Eastman then went on to outline, basically in bullet points, what he thought that meant. And he said, I quote, a fountainhead by definition is that principal source a place where rivers begin to flow. And he went on, God is looking for churches where rivers of life 
flow from them. And he said, a fountainhead church exhibits a spirit of praise, of prayer, spiritual warfare, release, and risk, where life flows out through its worship and its people who are ready to go even to the ends of the earth. We've been looking at prophecy, one mark of the Holy Spirit in both the Old and the New Testaments. It was a key part of Israel's faith, and the prophets promised that one day God would pour out his prophetic spirit upon all of his people. Now, with Jesus, prophecy was revived in Israel. He read hearts. He knew things from a distance. He made predictions. And resurrected, Jesus assured his followers that they too would receive the promised Holy Spirit. And ever since that Pentecost, the gift of prophecy has been one of the distinguishing marks of this, the Messianic age, stretching from Easter on through to the return of Jesus Christ. Only when we stand face to face before the throne of God, only then will we no longer need the spiritual gifts, including prophecy. We have seen that prophecy is not primarily predicting the future. Most prophecy serves to read hearts, to reveal one's hidden past and unspoken thoughts. The Holy Spirit exposes our hidden sins to break the bondage that secrecy and shame impose on us. The Spirit speaks to build up both individuals and the church as a whole, to encourage and embolden us as we confront challenges, and to reassure and calm us in, in the midst of turmoil or disappointment. Prophecy should always be weighed, always. Uh, as an aside, that also means no private prophecies. If anyone ever pulls you aside to give you a private prophecy, make sure you run it by somebody else as well. Just, just saying. And that means to be weighed. What, does it conform to Scripture? Is it applicable to the person or the matter at hand? And in what spirit is it given? Those are important questions. Scripture evaluates true and false prophets differently than it does true and false predictions. That's an important distinction. 
On true and false prophets, true prophets will always point you toward the God of Israel, toward the God of Scripture, and to the cross of Jesus Christ. Anyone who points you to other gods, to spirits, or teachings, other teachings, is a false prophet. In the Old Testament times, they were to be stoned. Today, just turn and run the other way as fast as you can. But a wrong prediction, now predictions are different, a wrong prediction does not make someone a false prophet. The Bible says that they have merely spoken presumptuously. And what do you do about it? It says, ignore it. It says, don't be frightened by it, which means ignore it, ignore it. And that's a good thing, because, you know, I'll tell you, the only way a prophet can learn how to discern what the Spirit is or isn't saying, you know how, how, a, spirit, how, how, a, how a prophet, discern, a, a beginning prophet discerns that? Trial and error by making mistakes. You know, it's when you hold back that word you should have said, oh, that feels terrible, people. You feel like you want to just sink through the floor. Or when you speak out a word that you shouldn't have said, there you just want to hide in a closet. But that's how you learn. So mistakes are an inevitable part of the learning process, and that's okay. If you make a mistake or you bring a word that gets flagged by the elders, then learn from it and move on. That's okay. And finally, we learn that the purpose of predictive prophecy is to point you to who God is. The God who knows and ordains all things. It, a predictive prophecy can prepare you for things coming around the corner up ahead so that you won't be completely blindsided. You'll be at least in some measure ready. And it reassures you that when a, a prediction does come true and something happens, you'll recognize, ah, it was God who did that. He told me he was going to do it, and, God, and it's just happened. So God was the one doing that, and I will know he did it for a reason. Whether I understand the reason yet or not, I'll know there was a reason, because he said he was going to do it. Now, a fascinating story of predictive prophecy is in 1 Kings chapter 22. You're welcome to turn there. This same story shows up mostly word for word verbatim in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. I guess it was such a good story, it was worth telling more than once. I'll be using the version in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 22. 
Jehoshaphat of Judah and Ahab of Israel are conferring whether to attack the neighboring kingdom of Aram in order to recapture Ramoth-Gilead. And I'll start in verse 5. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 of them, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no other prophet of the Lord here of whom we may inquire? Remember, he's just asked 400. 400. So is there in there anybody else? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there, there is still one other by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies anything favorable about me, but only disaster. Okay, pause there. So the kings, at this point the kings send for Micaiah, and the messenger who comes to get him urges him to say something nice, you know, like all the other prophets did. We'll, we'll resume in verse 15. Now, when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each one go home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Ha! Didn't I tell you he wouldn't predict anything favorable about me but only disaster. So Ahab, when this starts, Ahab is preparing for war regardless what happens. He's figuring we're going to go to war and take Ramoth-Gilead, take it back. But Jehoshaphat, he wants to hear from the prophets first. And when all 400 say yes, Jehoshaphat gets suspicious. I mean, you can hardly get four people to agree on anything, let alone 400. So this is starting to look a little fishy. He wants, (coughs) excuse me, he decides he wants a 401st second opinion. from someone who's, oh, how shall we say, out of the mainstream. And the only prophet left 
is definitely out of the mainstream, and that is Micaiah ben Imla. Now, when Micaiah agrees, okay, let's go to war, this time it's Ahab's turn to get suspicious because Micaiah never says anything nice to Ahab. So when, when he tells him, okay, you're going to win, they say, uh-oh, there's something wrong here. Micaiah's not telling me the truth. That doesn't sound like the Micaiah I know and hate. And so when he's put on the spot, Micaiah brings the real word. It's a vision of scattered sheep without a shepherd. And Ahab throws up his hand. See, didn't I tell you? That's exactly what he does. Listen to that. That's why I never ask him anything. Well, for some reason, I assume it has something to do with the 400 to 1 odds that they had gotten from the prophets. The kings ignore Micaiah's vision, and they go to war. Just to uh, fill out sort of the rest of the story, just in case there might be some truth to Micaiah's warning, Ahab disguises himself as an ordinary soldier, and despite his precautions, seemingly by chance, Ahab gets shot and killed by an archer, and Micaiah's prediction is fulfilled. So what we have here are 400 prophets who may be, you know, what we would call yes-men, but up to this point, they have been largely accurate. And even now, as they and Micaiah, too, encourage Ahab to go to war, they're saying exactly what God wants them to say. Because, you see, God has intended and purposed Ahab's destruction. That means these prophets, they may be inaccurate because Ahab's not going to go up and triumph. They may be inaccurate, but they are true prophets because they are delivering God's intention correctly. God is intentionally misleading them. He even says that's part of Micaiah's vision that we didn't read, that he's doing it on purpose because he has, re- has purposed that Ahab's day of reckoning has come, which tells us right there that God can even use an inaccurate prediction to accomplish a higher purpose. God is There can be a little sneaky that way. Now, what I really want to focus on today is I want you to notice Micaiah's prediction, the real one, the sheep without a shepherd. He does not offer an alternate human course of action. He doesn't offer conditions. He does not say, 
God is going to strike you down unless you repent or something like that. He does not say you can avoid this fate if you don't go to war. That is, Ahab will ignore Micaiah's warning. He must go to war, and he cannot dodge his fate even by masquerading as somebody else. This prophecy comes without strings, without alternatives, without stipulations. Micaiah does not tell him what he should do about it. You notice? He says, this is what's going to happen. This is what I saw. He doesn't tell him what to do about it or how he should respond to it. This is simply what God is going to do so everybody is going to know that it was God who did it. Now, we do find in the Old Testament that prophets at times make conditional predictions to warn folks, especially to warn them to repent. If you turn, shuvi, turn, if you turn and get your heart right with God, he might not smash you like a bug. And beyond this, though, it's very rare that you'll find a prophet ever provides a program. A program in the sense of, you know, God says you're supposed to do this, then do that, then wait a moment and finally push through with this over here. Prophecy is a call certainly to do the right thing, to be who and what God has called you to be and what he intends for you to be and do, but it is not a step-by-step -step user's manual uh, about how to get this done or get out of that scrape. And this you, I want you to take home with you. Prophecy is not a program. Prophecy is not a program. Let's turn to the New Testament to illustrate this principle. <clears throat> I'll start with some of Jesus' predictions. An obvious example. <clears throat> Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him and then predicts Peter will deny him. In neither case does he call Judas or Peter to repent and alter the course of the future. He simply says, this is what you're going to do. This is, you swear you won't, but this is what you're going to do. This is what's going to happen. And he doesn't give them an alternative. He doesn't give them a program to change it. Jesus predicts his rejection, his suffering, and his death. But he does nothing and says nothing to keep it from happening. He signals to the disciples that this must happen in the saving purpose of God. God is going to do 
what God is going to do to get done what God knows needs to get done. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, but he offers no appeal to avoid disaster. Oh, Jerusalem, repent, repent, and, and God will not destroy, burn down the city and destroy the temple. There is no alternative program. This is what God is going to do. There will not be one stone left upon another. He predicts the sudden and unexpected return of the heavenly Son of Man with his angels to bring salvation and judgment. But Jesus gives no agenda for any human way to delay it or to hasten it. Now, believers need to take note of this. I've heard way too many who presume that if they can just breed the perfect red heifer or rebuild the temple, that we can create the conditions for the coming of the Messiah. I've heard too many who presume that if we can somehow speed up or delay the battle of Armageddon, that we can influence when Christ returns. And all of that is patently untrue and presumptuous against the sovereignty and the purpose and plan of God. That's not what Jesus' prophecies were to tell us to do. They're not a program of how we are supposed to change the situations, change the conditions. That is, according to Jesus, this is what's going to happen. God is going to do what God is going to do when God is going to do it, and there's not one thing you or I can do about it except be ready. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 11, and we'll start at verse 27. Acts eleven twenty-seven. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world, and this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea, and this they did, sending it by, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So around, oh, maybe 40, 41 A.D., the Christian prophet Agabus visits Antioch and predicts a worldwide famine. 
a famine which did indeed unfold, but piecemeal over the next 10 years or so. It hit central Italy very hard in 42 AD, Palestine from 46 through 48, Greece in 49, and Italy again in 51 AD, all of which fell within the reign of Claudius. But I want you to notice in this story that Agabus does not tell the church what to do about it. He just says, it's coming, be aware of it. He doesn't say what to do about it. Rather, it is expressly said, Luke tells us, it is the disciples, the ones who heard it and listened to it, the disciples there in Antioch, who then discuss among themselves and decide how they want to respond. They could, of course, have opted to do nothing, you know, have a wait-and-see attitude. They could have said, oh, maybe we ought to store up foodstuffs for ourselves and especially for our poor, and then develop their own stock, you know, stock up themselves for the, the folks in Antioch. But instead, they choose to take up a collection for the churches in Judea which I think we are to presume is considered a sign of solidarity with the Jerusalem Mother Church. And it would certainly be a polite gesture of thanks to Agabus for alerting them to this coming famine, because Agabus was, of course, from the Jerusalem Church. He was from Judea. It's very polite, oh, Agabus, we're going to make sure your churches, your church and your, your family and your people there are taken care of too. So they take up this offering and send it. Now another story, but it's, it's the disciples who decide to do that on their own that's not inherent in Agabus' prophecy. We have another story about Agabus. I wish we knew more about him. He's one of my favorite characters in Acts. But another story about Agabus is in chapter 21, starting in verse 8. Then Paul and his entourage is on the way to Jerusalem, and they're arriving at the coast and getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. So the next day we left and came to Caesarea. And we went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Those girls, by the way, became famous later in the church. But. And while we were staying there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And he came to us and took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands with it, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
this is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we remain silent except to say, the Lord's will be done. So what we see here in this story, what we hear, is a group of Christians debating among themselves what to do with a prophetic prediction. Agabus performs a, what we would call a prophetic sign, tying himself, hog-tying himself, basically. That, now, that is probably a miracle right there. But hog-tying himself with Paul's belt, I don't know how he did it, and, uh, and then prophesying that what would happen to Paul. But he doesn't tell Paul what to do about it, does it? Might Paul be able to avoid his fate if he changes his plans? That's what the other brethren there in Caesarea were discussing among themselves. And some of them think so. Paul chooses to continue on his travel to Jerusalem, even if it leads to martyrdom, which ultimately we're not told that, but ultimately years later it did. You see, Paul understands that Agabus' prediction is not a programmatic call to action, but informs the church what is going to happen so Paul will not be surprised when it does happen and will know that God is in it working out his purpose. God is not surprised by it. So, Paul, don't you be surprised either. This is part of the plan. So, back almost to the present. Thirty-four years ago, Dick Eastman delivered the Fountainhead Prophecy announcing God's special role for Kempsville Presbyterian Church. I don't know how many of you were there when it happened. There were a few. I see a half dozen, half dozen hands or so. Our connection to the past. Thank you. And it became a keystone in the self-understanding of this congregation. See, we had maybe six or seven hands go up. How many of you have, have at some time heard of the Fountainhead Prophecy? There are very few hands that are not up. Most folks have heard of it. But that being said, I have to say, I've wondered through how through the years how many KPCers have really understood what it does and doesn't mean. I affirm that I think the Fountainhead prophecy 
itself was a true word. The problem comes, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? <clears throat> Dick Eastman said, the more a church becomes a fountainhead, by the very nature of a river flowing out from the people, they become rivers. And he stressed qualities and attitudes of the members that reflect that calling. But he did not set out a program for achieving God's end. In the decades since then, however, pastor after pastor have tried to use the fountainhead prophecy to shape, well, they say they want to shape a dynamic vision, but what they really try to shape is a program, a very different thing. <clears throat> You take a prophecy and turn it into an agenda. No. I have on my desk a half dozen of these fountainhead prophecy agendas on my desk. I read through them many times. Most of them, and this is to me, really disappointing, most of them are ho-hum. I mean, the worst thing you can do is take a dynamic word from the Lord and make it boring. But we preachers manage to do that. I guess, I guess we learn that in seminary. <clears throat> but the worst ones, in my mind at least, <coughs> They invoke the fountainhead prophecy only in order to appeal for increased financial giving and volunteering among church members. The fountainhead prophecy becomes a stewardship program. Yuck! Or they cite it to justify a bigger building program. No. People. The Fountainhead prophecy only says that God has purposed that KPC is a Fountainhead church. All the rest, including the rest of Dick Eastman's delivery, all the rest is just commentary. Man's commentary. Prophecy is not a program. It announces what God is gonna do, period. All you can do is be ready, stay ready, and quite literally, go with the flow. Now, one of these pastors, and fortunately for them, Except for one, none, none of them have the pastor's name on them, so I have no idea who wrote which discussion on the Fountainhead Prophecy, and that's probably a good thing. But one of them likened the Fountainhead to 
an artesian well, a never-ending brook that bubbles up from the ground as a perennial source of refreshment and life, unquote. To which I say, no, poppycock. An artesian well is not a fountainhead. Look, I grew up in Florida where the limestone substrate is crisscrossed underneath with mighty underground rivers. And I know what a fountainhead is. It's not, it, it's not some little one-inch pipe drilled down into the water table that sort of runs constantly like a broken toilet. It's a craggy hole in the rock big enough to drive a tour bus through if you were inclined to do it with an underwater tour bus. <laughs> but it's where a deep river breaks through onto the surface in a powerful ice-cold flow. If you want to understand this prophetic word, folks, you need a bigger imagination. A fountainhead cannot be contained. You can't just build a bigger and bigger basin to hold it in. Because sooner or later, even then, it's going to break through every earthwork and every retaining wall that you can make and flood out into the surrounding countryside. The water cuts its own winding channel, feeding rivers and marshes and deltas. The fountainhead is simply the starting place. The water then goes where it will, where it must, as it's pushed out by the powerful current that continues to stream from within and push it out from behind. This is not a little spring in a pond. I've been, I was, I was reminded that, you know, when you just have a little pond that sits there and eventually it goes stagnant, and that's how you, where we get those brain-eating bacteria from. If you're wondering where your memory's gone, is that the problem? Are we too much of a little stagnant pond and we need a bigger flow? But you see, this is not a little spring in a pond. It is a vast spirit flood that beginning from here must and will flow out into its environs. It'll cut its own channels as the water of the Holy Spirit presses out from here into other communities and churches. KPC could never, ever build or have built a building large enough to actually contain it. And it was never supposed to. The dynamism of the Spirit, the power of the gospel, attracts the thirsty here to be saved and empowered and then what happens, they're swept out elsewhere to take that water with them in Jesus' name. 
That is why there are more charismatic churches and fellowships here in this community than anywhere else I have ever been in the world. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, they all started or were shaped decisively by people who got it here at KPC and then went out into the community and went out to other churches and took it with them. You say, well, we didn't send them there. That was the problem. Because if you don't send them, God will have to make sure they go, and he'll use whatever means it takes to get them out of here and get them somewhere else. Oh, we've had so much conflict because you didn't do enough sending people. It was there in that prophetic word they go out and go out. You either send them out or God's going to send them out in spite of you. The, Holy, the flow of the Holy Spirit is irresistible. So I want to hear back from you. What is the flow of the Holy Spirit? Irresistible. That means you cannot stop it, you cannot thwart it, you cannot contain it. You will fulfill your calling either willingly or unwillingly but God is going to do what God is going to do. Would you say that with me? I want you to take that home with you too. God is going to do what God is going to do. Eastman got it wrong on one point. When he said, God is looking for churches where rivers of life flow from them. And what's wrong with that is simply that, and this is a typical preacher thing. Preachers do this all the time. We'll always are trying to find some way to take a word, whether it's a word of scripture or a word of prophecy or even just, you know, a wise nugget. And we want to try and turn it into something motivational that will get people to go out and do something. Preachers are terrible about that. It's not enough to say God's going to do it says, God is looking for churches where rivers of life flow from them. So he makes it sound as if God's purpose and plan depend somehow on you and how you respond. You know, be this way and then God can use you. But this is not a conditional prophecy. Have any of you found that God has used you and you didn't even know he was doing it at the time? 
Have you ever found God used you in spite of you? Every time, yes. It's not a conditional prophecy, and so much of what the Scripture tells us is not in that way conditional. God isn't looking for anything. You know, it's not like you are automatically a just bubbling fountainhead on your own, and then God says, oh, I can use this one. No, God doesn't look for it. God makes it happen. God is the one who wills and purposes and chooses and transforms and makes it happen in your life, in your church, in this world. God purposed for the river of the Holy Spirit beginning a long time ago, 40 years ago, to break through here at KPC. And because of what he was doing, this church became a significant source of evangelism and spirit baptism in this community and across the southeast. Now, I have to pause for just a moment to listen because the last page of my sermon is missing. So I guess the Lord wants me to wing it. How are we doing on time? God has his purposes in each and every life. God has his purpose in every church and in this church. He is going to work his purpose out. That is a biblical principle. And for those who don't know it, that is a thorough Presbyterian principle. That God is the sovereign and that God works it out. And he offers for us to collaborate and work with him, but it does not depend on what we do and our collaboration because God is going to do what God is going to do. He's giving you the opportunity to get on board with him. He's going to do it, and he can do it the easy way. <laughs> you know what's come else is coming there? Or he can do it the hard way. And while the, the spirit here has been flowing and bubbling for decades, as far as doing what God wants a fountainhead to do, KPC has been consistently doing it the hard way. So please, for your own peace of mind, let's stop it. <laughs> and let's go with God and see how God wants this to be a source of the power and the life of the Holy Spirit, not just here, and with people we know and can reach. But all over, I mean, we send missionaries all over the place. You haven't begun to see the missionaries he's going to be sending out of here yet. 
He's going to let it flow through here and go spread out into other congregations. You haven't begun to see the congregations that can be influenced by that yet. God has been taking this body and working it down to a core. Well, what happened to all those other people that were here? You know, you've gone from, what, 650 in worship to normally about 225. Where'd the others go? I'll tell you where they went. Most of them went to other churches. And you know what they did? They took with them what they had experienced here. And you know what that's going to do in those churches? It's going to revitalize them and enliven them and, and broaden their perspective. Now, I'm going to completely get off my manuscript. I've just been praying to the Lord about where he wants to go with KPC and what he wants to do. Right now, there's a, he's doing some work, some shaping, some pruning, still during this summer. And the Lord was asking me, Benjamin, what would you like to see happen here? Well, I'm not a stickler about numbers. But I know if the flow's going to be here, there are going to be hungry people coming. And if it's supposed to be a fountainhead, there's going to be so much of the spirit sloshing around, it's going to have to flow out. So I know that's the dynamism that's going to be happening. That's what God wants to do. So I said, okay, Lord, <clears throat> I'd like to see more people coming in to hear the gospel more people coming in to get filled with the Holy Spirit and learn how to walk in the gifts uh, and minister to each other and become ministers. I'd really like to see that. And he said, how many? Well, I had thought, at first I thought 600. But I know it takes time to train up people as they come in. So I said, Lord, okay, what I'd like to see is by the end of next summer, I'd like to see us running about 400 in worship. And I said, 600 keeps sticking in my head. Could you let them hit 600? And I'd like by, to be able to pass off this congregation to the next pastor with at least 400 in worship. And I'm going to trust that within two years or so of that pastor's ministry, that you'll be running around six. I don't see you getting larger than 600 because you know what God's going to do with that overflow? He's going to send them. He's going to send them into the mission field. He's going to send them out into other churches. He's going to send them to other communities into some of the stodgy and, and stuffy churches that are out there that need some fresh water, the water of life. That's what I've said to the Lord. That's what I'm trusting for. That's what I believe, and I want to ask you to believe with me for that. Because God has not given up on his purpose for this congregation and if God has given you a word, God has not given up on that word. 
even if you have a personal word and you just don't see it happening, stop trying to make it happen yourself. Trust him, and he will make it happen in his good time. Why? Because God is going to do what God says he's going to do, and he's going to do it when he says he's going to do it, and you can't help it, and you can't stop it. That is the sovereignty and the majesty of the God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we are trusting that you are working out your purpose in each life here and in this church. And we ask, Lord, that you would make this word unfold in our midst again. You've promised again and again that people are just going to line up at the altar here just to come and know Jesus or get filled with the Holy Spirit, that people are going to be thirsty and hungry and that you want to use this congregation to minister to them. And you told them a long time ago you want to use this congregation to minister to the surrounding area and people all across the southeast and around the world. So Lord, we give you free reign, which you're going to take anyway, to do what you want to do, what you've said you're going to do, and we only ask, Lord, you'd help us to be willing partners in your work and give you the glory and you alone the glory as you make it unfold. In Jesus' name we ask it, all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.